UK. That wraps it up. Thanks. Good morning, Solano. I want to start by reading our passage today. And so if you have it memorized, great. If you don't, we'll have it on the screen for you. I'm not sure I could pull it off uh, with the pressure of your eyes on me with, without looking at it. So let us read or cite Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Did I miss something? I did. <laughs> Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All right. Yeah, I could tell it was the nerves. Even the passage I'm preaching today, I, I missed a line. But, um, you know, before we begin in, in speaking of the idea of the, shallow, the, the, the valley of the shadow of death, there's pain in the world, there's pain in our lives. I just want to take a moment and pray for Morocco. Uh, we weren't able to have a pastoral prayer, but this is such a, a huge crisis over, uh, what was the last, last count I saw it was over 2,000 people. What's it up to? Does anyone know that number? But that's just, yeah, devastating. So just bow your heads with me and uh, let's pray for that country. Uh, Lord, we want to uh, send our prayers to you and on behalf of Morocco, Lord. Um, this is an area of the world that can be difficult for us to know much about, and it's, it's been under the, the influence of Islam, and uh, Christianity is not as present in that part of Africa anymore. But Lord, these are still human beings. These are still, they're still suffering. And Lord, we want you to come and provide and, um, and do miracles, Lord. Uh, let goodness and let um, uh, charity flow into that country. Uh, Lord, would you uh, save people who are still hurting uh, and bind up the wounded, Lord. So we just pray for, for you to work through this uh, crisis, Lord. We, we pray for uh, salvation to come uh, and even open doors for the gospel maybe through through this kind of um, event, Lord. So we trust you. We're not sure why these things happen, but we lift, we lift up our prayers on their behalf. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You also notice we, uh, we didn't do a Slano Life announcement, so make sure to just check the bulletin. I think we actually passed out a, a half-sheet bulletin to keep up with the different events that you can sign up for and uh, pay attention to. In 1992, Gary Chapman wrote a book called The Five Love Languages. And uh, it was so popular that it's almost become common knowledge. Uh, and he basically said there are five ways that we all give and receive love. And so have you guys heard of this? Are you familiar with the five love? Right, we've kind of heard of it. So uh, it, like I said, common knowledge. So it is, I, could, I can kind of recite it. Help me out here if I forget because of the pressure I'm under. Uh, it was quality time, right? And we have gifts. We have physical touch. We have acts of service. 
and we have words of affirmation. Did I get them all right? Um, and I think, it, I think that it makes sense. I think the reason it caught on and stuck with us is it's intuitive, it makes sense. There are ways in which each of us tend to prefer ways we give love or receive love. And uh, this has actually worked out for me in my marriage. So Jamie and I are actually celebrating 18 years today, September the 10th. <clears throat> and we just had a funny moment the other day where she was like, Paul, I didn't get you anything for your anniversary. And I was like, I didn't get you anything either, but we're gonna go out to dinner and we're happy about that. Because we're a quality time. We're not necessarily gifts. Uh, now you're welcome to get me gifts or us. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying, thankfully, that's not our key love language. Um, <clears throat> but you know, I think the one thing, the one um, thing I might nitpick about the five love languages is I feel like there is one of them that is all of our love language, isn't it? There's one of them that we all need at least from time to time, and I think that's going to be words of affirmation. I think all of us. Um, or it can be so blessed and encouraged by somebody who comes in to our life and speaks love and speaks life and speaks affirmation and belief into us. And in fact, these kinds of voices can change the whole trajectory of our lives. When someone comes into our life and speaks love, speaks encouragement, and is for us and believes in us. Even Tim Keller, um, the pastor of Redeemer in New York City, which ended up being um, having a huge influence all over the world for decades, he recently passed away. But he tells the story of being on a search committee for a church planter in New York City. He was the one trying to find it, and someone else said to him after a long search, you should do it. I think you are gifted to do it. So Tim Keller just kind of talks about how he wasn't going to do that, but someone affirmed him, and, and that is what God used to help him pull the trigger to say yes, and many of our lives have been blessed because of that. But it was because of someone's, someone was willing to see how God had gifted him and his calling and affirmed that. <clears throat> Even I would say, thinking about this idea of affirmation, just being here at Solano for the last two years has been a joy, mainly because of a lot of the affirmation I've received from many of you. And I'm going to especially call out the Hoffmans, both of them, Jody and Andrew, have been really specific in encouraging me. And that has really helped me feel uh, joyful in my role as a pastor. So all of us, I think, are wired to be built up by affirmation. And part of that is because there is a painful aspect to life. The reason why affirmation is so important is because we also all face critical negative voices. We all have uh, voices in our life, maybe people in our life that discourage us or criticize us even maybe deceive us and marginalize us and just overall steal our joy. <clears throat> and what's worse is not only do we have opponents in this life, we can be our own worst enemies, can't we? The voice inside can be some of the most harsh voice that we ever hear is our own critic. And to top it off, the Bible speaks of uh, an ultimate enemy, the deceiver, Satan, the one who is the accuser and trying to destroy our souls. And so in the midst of the hostilities that we face and our own worst critic and even our own failures, we need affirmation. And we need it especially 
in our walk with God, in our faith journey, because the Christian life is referred to as a calling. The calling means that it is that God, to, to become a Christian, that means God is calling us to live out his purpose for us. We're called to live for a destination. There's a journey that we are trying to get to a destination. And we're supposed to do it in a manner worthy of God. And so that means that there are going to be many obstacles to fulfilling our calling as Christians. To living our life worthy of God. And to enduring all the way to the end of our lives in faith. And so um, in light of that, uh, we, we need to regularly hear affirmation. And the most important affirmation we need to hear is from God himself. What if you could regularly hear life-giving affirmation from your creator, from the God who made the whole universe can speak right into your soul on a regular basis? And so that's what we're going to read about today. <clears throat> the psalmist is extolling God's goodness to him in Psalm 23. And he comes to this place where he says, but I have enemies I have people who are against me, who are thwarting me, who are jeering me, who are hurting me, who are stealing my joy. He's feeling beat down. And yet God welcomes him in to be his guest. Last week, if you were here, the Iwawakis titled their sermon, Be Our Guest. And it was about hospitality. And today we learn about what would it be like to be God's guest? What if God was the host? and we were invited to his house, what would that look like? What would that mean for us? So we're gonna look at three images. We're gonna to try to meditate on the three images of this one passage, verse five. <clears throat> and it starts off and it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Here are the three images, the table, the anointing oil, the cup that overflows. So we're gonna see what these images say about how God affirms us. And the first thing he says is, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And so what we're seeing here is he's addressing a problem that is very common in the Psalms and it's the problem of enemies. If you read through all the Psalms, this is a huge theme. The anointed one, the psalmist, is surrounded by people who are against him. And the reason why this is a theme in the Psalms is that the world hates God and therefore hates his anointed king, the one that God has chosen to represent him on earth. If they hate God, they're going to hate his anointed one. So look at Psalm 2 that sets the stage for the conflict that we are all into this day. Next slide. <clears throat> It says this, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The people plot against God. They rage against God. By nature, we look at God's loving good rule of our lives as oppressive. We look at God's commands and say, I want to get out of this like it's a jail cell. 
I want to live the life I want to live and no God is going to tell me differently. And so any idea of God's command, God's rule in our life, we are destined or designed or by nature, we rebel against that. So we need to understand who we are in the story when it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. We are not born just because we are alive does not make us welcome to God's table. Just because we exist, we are not welcomed as a guest to God's table. We're actually his enemies. We're the ones that are pushing against God, raging against God and against his anointed. And that was ultimately displayed in the life of Christ when he came on into the world representing God's love. What did human being, what did society do? We crucified him. Both the Jewish leaders and the Roman, the secular and the religious all came against him and even his apostles abandoned him. And yet what the Bible says, what the good news is, is that in the presence of Jesus' enemies, God prepared a table for him. And it was the table that he celebrated that we talked about last week, where at that table, God said, this is my, Jesus said, this is my, my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. What God had prepared for Jesus was a work he was going to do on our behalf so that he would die on the cross for us and we would be as enemies invited to come and be a part of his table. That because of the, his sacrifice for us, God's enemies would be, would be invited to, to have God be the shepherd of their lives, the shepherd of our lives. So I just want to say that if that, if you have, ne- if you have, if you're here and you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, that invitation is open to you. That you can go from being an enemy of God to being the one that he shepherds, the one that he welcomes in and is, says to you, be my guest. But it is not until we have laid down our will and surrendered to Jesus that we can, we can have that invitation. That invitation is there, but until we surrender, we're raging against him. So this picture of the welcoming table is for those of us that can be identified with Jesus. But here's what that means. Here's what Jesus' sacrifice for us means. That when we read the Psalms, and we read this Psalm about God speaking, about the, the, the psalmist speaking about how God is treating him, That means that is true of all of us who are in Christ. Every promise that we see in the Psalms, we can say that is God speaking directly to us because of Christ. And so what we have in this passage is the psalmist is coming out of the valley of death. And now he speaks of his enemies. They're beating him down. He's tired. He's hurting. He's weak. And God is saying, come in and be my guest. Come to my table. And I want to just pause here and and just note a couple things. When the psalmist talks about enemies, and we, that's an area of our life that we're all going to have to wrestle with. That we're going to go through life and we're going to have enemies. And I want us to parse out what, what that might mean. Who is an enemy what is an enemy? And I think there's, there's three kinds that we can identify. Maybe, actually, there's five, but you'll see why I said three. 
And I think the first kind of enemy is someone who is blatantly hostile to us. They do things to hurt you. They just are against you. And so I call this a bad blood relationship. And so maybe it's a type of bully or a reviler or some kind of abuse or cheater or manipulator. These are just really bad, painful relationships. But I think there's another kind of enemy, and I don't think we would normally refer to this as an enemy, and, we don't, and that is a strong language, but I just want to recognize that there is another kind of person who is not necessarily openly hostile to us, and yet this relationship is hurtful to us. And so I call this a difficult relationship. Maybe it's a type of critic or a rival or someone that you experience unfriendliness from, or maybe it's, there's a lot of guilt on you because of this relationship. Um, just negative interactions, maybe feelings of rejection. So we don't necessarily want to view this person as an enemy, like they're an enemy of God and they're just this horrible person. But I want to recognize there are some people in our lives that are, are just, it's just painful. It's just hard and can have a similar effect on us as a bad blood relationship where it makes us just feel like we're, we're being shut down. It makes us feel like we're being drained of our joy. So we all have people in our life like that. I would just add, to avoid being self-righteous, probably all of us at some point will be that person in someone's life. And I think this is the reality of sin. This is the reality of a broken world. That we have difficult people and even ourselves cause pain in other people's lives. And lastly, I would say there's those who we perceive as potentially becoming hostile. I think perceived enemies is also something we have to deal with, that if we act a certain way or do something, we're afraid of how people are going to treat us as a result. And so that can also lead to fear. That can also shut us down. And so we're going to need to hear God's affirmation in the midst of this. And then the next two, which I mentioned before, are the voice inside. We could be our own worst enemy. And then Satan as well. And these can be painful. Listen to how the psalmist experiences his enemies. Verse six. I am weary with my, mo- with my moaning. This is uh, chapter six, sorry, Psalm six, uh, verse six. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. So he's saying that when we have people that are against us, it can just feel like I'm dying. It could feel like I'm wasting away. I can barely get out of bed. And so some of us are dealing with that right now. Probably all of us will deal with this at some point. And I think all of us have the fear of it or just some people in our life that are are difficult for us to move forward in life with. They're hard. And what God wants us to know in this passage is that the enemy does never, it never gets the last word. But what God says that is stunning in this passage is that when we are faced with the worst kind of hostility and oppression, God says that he prepares a table for us. You know what that means about God? God serves us. God serves you. This can be difficult to take in, this idea, but this is what the text says. The psalmist is saying, God, you prepare a table. 
Have you ever set a table before? I mean, it's a chore that we could barely get our kids to do. And yet God is saying, I am here as a, to serve you in your worst moments. And that is an act of affirmation. He is saying, I care about you. I see your pain and I care and I am here to help. And it's the kind of affirmation that I think some of us were used to this. We experienced this. Like if you've ever been a part of a meal train, have you ever experienced being on a meal train, right? So this is where somebody is either has a baby or is recovering from surgery or something and the people that love them surround them and say, let us bring you a meal. Let us bring you a meal. Do you know why? Because we just want you to enjoy your new child. Sit back and let us help you. Or we just need you to recover. You're, you're, you're sick. You're, 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 you're over, overcoming surgery. Just sit back and let us feed you. Right? And so notice what would happen if that person said, no, no, I'm fine. I got it. It would disrupt the relationship because what we're saying when we do a meal training is we're saying we care about you. Let us serve you. Let us affirm our care for you by letting us do this. And so the people in the meal train, what do they need to do? What, what's their job? What do they need to do? They need to receive it. They need to receive it. And so what this means for us, if we're going to receive God's affirmation of us, if it's true that God serves us, I think that means we have to change our focus. When as Christians, we have to change our focus. And we, though the first thing is we have to change our focus away from our enemies. Next slide. One of the things I've noticed here is he says that in the presence of my enemies, you prepare a table. When we have people who we perceive as being against us, who are hurting us, it can consume our lives. It's all we think about. And we're consumed with anger, we're consumed with anxiety, or self-pity, or, or depression. And so what God is saying is, when you have enemies, I want you to put your focus on what I'm doing. What am I, I am ready to serve you in the, in the storm, in the eye of the storm of your enemies. It's almost brazen. In the presence of your enemies, God just is laying out a table and he says, come and sit with them jeering at you. I want you to sit at my table. I want your eyes on me. I want your eyes on what I'm doing for you. So we have to change our focus. The other thing we have to change our focus on is away from what we are doing from God to what God is doing for us. So I think this is a, a, a an important paradigm shift. We need to be thinking about us serving God, but actually, more importantly, more fundamentally, is you need to be thinking about how do you need God to serve you? What is it that you need? Jesus said this, I came not to, not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. You know what that means? That we are enemies of God until we recognize we're the ones that need his help. Otherwise, that's pride. Unless we come to God and say, I need you to save me, we can't know God's affirmation. To come to Jesus is to admit, I need your help. I'm the weak one. You're the strong one. I need your grace. That is the fundamental of faith. 
for the rest of your life. And I think we're wired to go to God and make up for that, right? When you receive a gift or someone serves you, you have this instinct, right? We want to make up for it. We want to pay back. But imagine the meal train scenario. Like imagine someone brings you meals because they care for you. And after you've recovered from your surgery, you go back and say, how much did that meal cost you? And you write them a check. What, what's wrong with that? Is it's tra- then you've made it transactional. But that was an expression of their love for you. You don't pay that back. And so that is what God is saying is you let me serve you because I care for you. That's what it means that Jesus shed his blood for you. That you are welcomed into his house. You are the weak one. In the presence of God, you are the needy one. Don't say you're the strong one. Before the cross, that, where, the, the, where Jesus shed his blood, don't say, I've got my act together. And don't say, I better get my act together before I can sit at this table. That negates what Jesus did. And you will never hear and know the affirmation of God until you can first go to God as the needy one. He prepares the table and invites you to it. So not only is God serving the psalmist, but when we think about the table, we need to also think about what he's feeding us. The table implies food. And so the affirmation of the food is actually the affirmation of God comforting our souls with what it most desperately needs. So not only is God's posture that of a servant when we are at our our, our greatest need, we see that God, his aim is to comfort us with the food that he provides. And the main way we feed on God is from the truth of his word. We must absorb and soak in what God says is true about us and about him. And so we need to feast on the truth of God. We need to feast on God to experience his affirmation of us in real time. You see, when we give our life to Christ, there is this important miracle that takes place. God indwells his Holy Spirit in us. He sends us Holy Spirit who indwells us. In fact, the verse we read about um, where Thomas says, you go and prepare a place for me in John, Jesus says, I'm sending my Holy Spirit who will comfort you. What that means is that when we read scripture as believers, the Holy Spirit is in us, apply, taking those truths and applying them as if God is speaking to our lives and hearts in that moment. And so God says, come and eat at my table. Come feast on my truth. I am going to speak affirmation into your soul right where you need it. I remember I was discouraged in my ministry as a pastor. And um, I was slogging through Second Chronicles. And I say slogging because I was reading through the Old Testament and sometimes it gets dry. I'm just going to admit that. And Second Chronicles especially can be, there can be some rough parts of Chronicles. 
But I was, I was trying to be faithful, and I come to 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 22. And does anyone know that passage? No. And it's a scene where Hezekiah the king is causing a revival to happen, and the Levites are called into service to teach and to minister, and they're ashamed. Because they've been neglecting the word for so long. And it says this, And Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. So they ate the food of the festival for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord. And God just spoke to me. Hezekiah was the king. And he just said, he just, it's saying to the Levites, you're doing a good job, keep going. That was the God speaking to me in that moment. It's exactly what I needed to hear. So in the word of God are the banquet of truths that our souls desperately need. In the word of God, you'll find script promises and truths of unconditional love and acceptance. In Ephesians chapter one, you find out that you are chosen, loved, forgiven, redeemed, sealed, adopted child of God. You're not even out of chapter one yet. Romans chapter 8, you just look there. It's a treasure trove of God's promises to you. And one of them always stood out to me. It says that when we are weak, when we are struggling, when we are failing, it says the Holy Spirit groans for us with groanings too deep for words. When you are in pain, either because of your own failures or the enemies against you, God says, I feel it even more deeply than you do. He's not condemning you. He's not chastising you. He's not exasperated with you. It's empathy. That heals. To know that that is God's posture towards me. And instead of condemnation and failure, in scripture we find loving correction. You know, when we mess up, we're afraid of God's condemnation. We're afraid of being chastised. But listen to what God says. He says, I write this to you so you will not sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. You see, what's wonderful about Scripture, Scripture is helping us not to sin. We need that. We need God to say, this is the way to love. This is the path of righteousness. Our souls need to walk that path. What a sweet path it is. And so God's word becomes sweet to us when it shows us the way, and yet when we fail the way, we're not condemned. We have Jesus as our advocate. No condemnation. Correction without ever condemnation. This is the affirming word of God, comforting our souls. And I think this is further communicated by the anointing oil. I think the oil is meant here as a comforting agent, right? Sometimes in the, in the Old Testament, oil is a, um, a ritual of distinction for service. So you're anointed to be a priest. You're anointed to be the king. But I think in this situation, it's more of a custom of hospitality. I think the image is more about a traveler being having a long journey, having enemies along the way, and he comes into the house beat up, tired, with Dirty wounds, and, and, and God as the host welcomes him in and feeds him 
and anoints the oil. The oil is, is meant to heal and clean out the wounds. But it's also meant to refresh. And so he starts to have the, the aroma of the oil begins to fill his nostrils. So he had the poison of the um, negative jeering from the enemies, but he comes into God's house and he smells, begins to smell the aroma of God's anointing oil, symbolizing his affirming love, right? So that's why in, in ancient times they anointed with oil when you were a guest because they were trying to communicate the guest, the, the host was saying, I am glad you are here. The oil was a symbol of that because you would feel and smell the aroma which would remind you all the time that the, get, that the host is glad. It's this, the, the, the aroma was a reminder of the gladness of the host to have you in his house. And that's what God wants us to feel is the aroma of his affirming love. To feel, he, to get healing and refreshment from his promises, from his truths, from his commands. <clears throat> and so if God is comforting us from the food that he gives and his anointing oil on us, what that means is let us come and feast at God's table. Feast at the table one, by experiencing God in his word. I've already talked about this. But we have to soak in what God says from his word. So that's things like Sunday, where we're preaching God's word, home groups, small groups, where you're discussing God's word, your own devotional time, any book you can get your hand on that makes God's word be real to you. We have to be soaking in God's word. We also feast at the table by experiencing communion with God in prayer. So I mentioned the Holy Spirit. Well, now the Holy Spirit is taking the word of God and making it alive to us. When you read scripture, it's like God is speaking right to you. That's the Holy Spirit. But it also means when we're praying, we're, we, we begin to feel that God is hearing us. Now we're opening up our souls to God. We're sharing our needs with God. And we're believing and experiencing that he is in communion with us. And also we feast at the table by experiencing the embodied love of God in God's people. I always say this, there is a problem with God and Jesus. I can't see him. They're not here. Jesus went up to heaven. And God says, that's because I've sent my Holy Spirit to be in you, the church. So if we want to feast on God, we have to experience him from one another. He is alive and present in us. That's why yesterday, last week's sermon, hospitality is so important. When we show hospitality to one another, that is a picture of God's very of uh, hospitality towards us. When we express affirmation and joy over each other, that's God's very joy over us. We have to experience this, and so we must prioritize these ways of feasting uh, at God's table. This is what he has prepared for us. That's why I think coming to church or home group are so important. They're triple dippers. All three of those are happening 
And so we prioritize those things. Those are, those are massively huge in our walks with God. We're being fed by him. Love and affirmation and truth and prayer. <clears throat> the final image we want to look at here is it says that our cup, he says, my cup overflows. Having become God's guest, he finds his goblet is overflowing with wine. I'm assuming it's wine. Certain churches may think grape juice. I'm going to say wine. Um, now I have to think about this that is odd to have a cup overflow have you ever hosted somebody and deliberately poured their glass to overflowing that'd be so stressful it just caused a ruckus right no one wants that and yet this is this is the custom this is what he's saying was happening my cup is overflowing and so what's going on with this imagery, I think I got to get a picture of this in one of my commentaries, captured this uh, journal entry from a Captain Wilson who is traveling, I believe, in India in the 1880s, and he wrote this, I once had this ceremony performed on me in the house of a great and rich Indian <clears throat> in the presence of a large company. The gentleman of the house poured upon my hands and arms a delightful Oh, uh, odoriferous perfume. He put a golden cup into my hands and poured wine into it until it ran over, assuring me at the same time that it was a great pleasure to him to receive me and that I should find a rich supply of my needs in his house. And so it's a symbolic act, this overflowing cup of saying, I am so glad you're here. I'm just gonna keep pouring the cup just overflows as a symbol of the, of the lavish love that the guest, the host has for the guest. And also saying, there's more where that came from. It's not a waste to see this fall to the floor because I have so much more. I want you to feel the impact of what it means for your cup to overflow. And so what this means is that most profoundly, the gospel means that God enjoys us. It's the affirmation of his enjoyment of you in his house. He serves us, he feeds us, he enjoys you. He has welcomed you to the table, not just to feed you, not just to serve you, but because he enjoys you and he wants you to enjoy him. Isn't that what table fellowship is most profoundly about? I mean, how, how much do we like to go to someone's table and eat their food when they don't like us? That sucks. I don't want to go to that table. I don't care how good it is. Maybe Rena's table. I'm sorry, that was, Rena doesn't like me, but she calls me, calls me to eat. I'm going to eat. She does like me, though. I'm pretty sure. Um, so God enjoys us and abundantly blesses us with more than we need. This is what it means to have the gospel of reconciliation. You see, when Jesus dies for us, we know we're, we're forgiven, but forgiveness is only a means to an end. Forgiveness is the gateway to enter into a relationship with God that he now wants us to experience the fullness of him. He wants us to know that we can rejoice in his presence because he rejoices in ours. And that's what the table represents. So I think this means two things for us. This imagery of the cup overflowing, 
Number one, we should ex- you should expect your heart to overflow with fulfillment as you walk with God. That's what God is promising us. He is saying, when you come to my table, over time you will find that your souls are going to reach heights of joy and comfort and empowerment you never thought possible. Now that can be hard to accept because a lot of us have pain in our life. We have loss in our life. And so God does not promise to give you everything you want. He promises to meet your needs with more than enough. That's an important distinction. And I think the very thing that he doesn't give you, the very pain that you have is he is helping, he's using that as a means to bring you to his table. To feast on the food of eternal life. He's saying, I don't want you to go to that table of something temporal and material that, you've been, that, is, that has been withheld from you. And that hurts. Something temporal or material of this world, even good things, if that is not happening to you, there is some purpose where God is saying, but I want you to come to my table. I am the bread of life. You will be more fulfilled by me than those other things you're looking for. So we can expect that no matter what happens in life as we walk with him, our cups will overflow. And lastly, wonderfully, I think it's saying that in the face of opponents and deep cuts from enemies, God will strengthen you to continue the work he's called you to. And so the thing about enemies is they make us want to quit. When we face opposition and criticism and discouragement, we want to give up. God wants you to keep going. He wants you to keep going even stronger than before. You know, when I remember I was in a little league, I was a 12-year-old, which means that I was in my last year in little league in the majors. I was supposed to be good. I had spent one year in the majors, I was bad, now it's my second year, this is the year to be good, and I was not doing well. The pressure was getting to me. I have a problem with pressure, apparently. The pressure was getting to me, and I was not hitting. I was, not, I, was, I was riding the bench, and I remember at one practice, although we had many coaches, the head coach pulled me aside, took me to a backstop, and just worked with me for like 10 minutes. I don't know how long it was. And he just, he just would show me to hit. He would do soft pitch with me. He would encourage me, and after that, it changed everything. I was hitting. I was an all-star by the end of the year. I didn't know it at the time, but I reflected back on that moment. And it was because he took that time to affirm me. He spoke belief into me. He believed and supported me. That's all I needed as a little 12-year-old. And I was, I, was, I was bangers after that. This is what God wants us to feel and experience from, from him. He invites you into this personal, intimate experience where he's saying, I believe in you. I affirm you. I'm here for you. I have truths that you need and I want to send you out to keep doing my work and so keep going whatever is discouraging you put your focus on what God is doing in your life feast on his table let him serve you and so be refreshed by the gospel of Jesus by the promises of his love and his purpose for you and his people loving and affirming you put yourself in a position to receive that And as our cup begins to overflow, 
we would overflow in joyful affirmation to one another and joyful endurance in our calling to serve Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for this message. Lord, I thank you for this passage that you've uh, called us to study and meditate on, not to move too quickly over it. Lord, it's only six verses, and yet it is packed with imagery of your love for us. Lord, we thank you that we um, get access to every one of these images because of Jesus and his blood shed for us. We were once your enemies, but by faith in you, we are now counted as one of your children. And we are invited to the table where you, as our loving guest, speak words of love and truth and affirmation. We can come to you where we are. And so Lord, I pray that everyone here today would be able to come to you with what exactly where they are, not worrying about how they need to make up or be better, but come to you to, to say, Lord, I am needy, I am hurting, I am lost, I am scared. And Lord, would you meet them? Would you fill our cups to overflowing? Would you let us celebrate the ways that you bring joy into our life and let us overflow into others? Let us overflow in joyful work for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.